this was beyond, this wasn't a school shooting. This wasn't my child having a, a disease. You know, this wasn't all of those horrible things that we shudder and think about. It was for me worse than that and unexpected and the ultimate type of betrayal. And so what I held on to in those early days was the idea that I don't know why I'm still here, but it must be for a reason. And I am not going to allow what happened to my baby to be what defines her, what defines our story. And so I tried to find ways tangible and intangible from day one to build a new story to build a story of her legacy, to build a story where I survived something that was supposed to kill me. Hello, friends. Welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. And in case you're new to the show, yes, this is a podcast all about grief. My guests and I explore the expansiveness and, well, pervasiveness of grief in our lives because Let's face it, 100% of us experience grief, actually multiple times in our lives. I witnessed it time and time again in my career as a social worker and in my personal life too, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. And yet individually and collectively, we're so grief illiterate and that's causing us all harm. So I'm on a mission to reimagine grief one conversation at a time. And I'm so glad you're joining me. My guest today, media executive Michelle Horde, was no stranger to trauma. Having started her professional career as an award-winning producer on America's Most Wanted, she expertly guided families through every facet of unthinkable crisis. Later, she covered heartbreaking stories while working at the Oprah Winfrey Show and Good Morning America. She sat with survivors of the unimaginable. When the unimaginable struck at home, her world changed forever when her daughter was murdered. In our conversation, just like in her beautiful book, The Other Side of Yet, Michelle has called lessons learned from mental health experts, therapists, spiritual leaders, and survivors. Michelle offers a beautiful and emotional story about how to keep moving with bravery and defiant faith through life's most challenging moments. Just a note for listeners, while Michelle doesn't go into detail, she does recount the day her child was murdered. Hey, Michelle, welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm so glad we were able to make this happen. Oh, I am too. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, So our listeners just heard a little bit about you and a little bit about your story and your beautiful, exquisite book, The Other Side of Yet, um, Finding Light in the Midst of Darkness. And y'all, I'm going to drop the link to the book in the show notes. Do yourself a favor and go and get it. Um, But so we're going to dive deep into sort of the idea of other side of yet. And I have so many things I want to talk to you about because my listeners know I sort of live in the both and and sort of thinking about the sort of growth opportunities, that's sort of my um, way of seeing the world. It's kind of the story of this t- tattoo, for those of you watching me on video. Um, so we're going to dive deep into that. And of course, your story of how this book came to be. 
Um, but I wanted to start our conversation where I do with all of my guests, and that's helping us all start to better understand where we learned our grief beliefs, how we think about what grief should and shouldn't look like. And for most of us, that happens when we encounter our first or first few losses, especially in childhood, from the ways in which adults in our lives sort of model explicitly, implicitly. So can you think of an early loss in your life that, and sort of how were the adults modeling that? Were they, you know, openly expressive? Were they quiet? Did they talk about it? Not? Does something come to mind? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was in the first grade, I was a tall, gangly, bucktooth kid. And um, the kid that looked out for me when the others were bullying's name was Willie. And because Willie was a year older than me, he was the only one that was almost as tall as me, <laughs> um, which made him boyfriend candidate number one in the first Obviously, grade. Obviously, yes, yeah. Um and, you know, it's so strange how memory works and how the brain protects us or reorganizes information, especially when it isn't processed. Um, my memories were being teased on the playground on like a sloshy Michigan March day, Willie defending me, um, another kid hitting him. In my memory, it was with a brick. And then I never saw Willie again. My next memory was us making little paper wreaths for Willie around Memorial Day. And so, you know, at five, probably had turned six by then. What I, the belief I held for years was that I'd killed him, that he was trying to look out for me and protect me, and I killed him. It was not something we talked about. Okay. Um, you know, I grew up in a two parent home. My mother was an elementary school teacher at the very school that I was at. I say that without any judgment of my mom. I think yeah. it's just so much the era. Yes. Um, yeah. to the point where years later, when I was probably in like the fourth grade and she caught me doodling and writing his name plus my name in a heart, she asked me who that was. And I told her and she said, you still remember that? Like surprised. Yeah. And I said, yes, I, I, I killed him. Oh. And she said, oh, no, sweetie, Willie was a sick little boy. He had, he had a disease called leukemia. He was very sick. So I think that, you know, for those of us of a certain age, you know, cranky Gen Xers. Um, <laughs> awesome Gen Xers. Sorry. Awesome. Gotta, gotta, yes. Yeah. Cranky for cranky. a good freaking reason. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We've earned it. Yeah. No, but, you know, I, I think that it was really a time of, you know, perhaps if I would have had the language to say something, um, I would have, but I didn't. And so I held it inside. I'm sure in ways I still can't comprehend. It impacted relationships, how I dealt with things beyond just grief, right? Yeah. But certainly grew up with this idea that death was this mysterious thing that just came and went and wasn't really to be discussed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the first memorial service I ever went to um, as a result of just in some ways, I think how protective my parents wanted to be, especially my mother. There was the idea of protecting from I know. Um, was my mother's memorial service when she died suddenly at 50 and I was 24. So the irony that, the protector 
could not protect us from this horrific, at that time, most tragic, horrific thing I'd ever experienced in my life, her sudden death, as her mother was dying of cancer and died three months later. Um, It died three months after your mom died. After my mom. So my mom died in February of 1994. Her mother was dying at the time and succumbed to cancer that had spread to her brain in May of 1994. So all of the sudden, my younger brother and myself, who had been protected and, you know, would hear, oh, by the way, aunt so-and-so, you know, some great aunt died three weeks ago. And by then my mom was back from the funeral and there was no discussing of feelings or memories or anything. Right. All of a sudden we were confronted with the reality of what death was and what it meant to grieve. Yes. Oh, first of all, thank you for sharing that story. And thank you for sharing Willie with us. And there's so many important lessons already in that first part of the conversation. One, which you brought up, which I appreciate and my listeners are probably sick of it, but I say all the time is I ask guests and myself, my students that I teach at the university to unpack our early grief experiences, not to diss on our parents. Our parents did the best they could. It was part of whatever era. It was a part of whatever their parents taught them. The whole point of me inviting all of us to sort of unpack our grief beliefs is to just have a really honest assessment around, does this serve us? And if not, how do I want to walk in the world differently so that I can move through my grief in a way that's more meaningful to me, but also show up as a grief supporter in ways that are meaningful to other people's because we, our grief beliefs don't just impact us. They impact the way we do or don't show up for other people. So I appreciate the way you said that story and, and that your mom, you know, didn't mention Willie and didn't take you to memorial services or anything, not out of some, out of some belief that she was really protecting you. And unfortunately what we know is that, um, when we're not exposed to something, when we don't have honest conversations about the reality of it, we make up all kinds of stories, like the story you made up about, mm-hmm. like I killed Willie. Mm-hmm. We fill in the narrative mm-hmm. real quick. And so I appreciate that you had to learn that. And, and and my heart goes out to the little Michelle that had to carry that too, you know, for that time. Yeah. And I'm interested because I think I remember reading in the book too, your grandfather was a Baptist minister? No. Yes, my dad's dad was a Baptist minister. minister. I only say um, that because yes. I've had some folks on the show who were similar, either a child of her. And in some ways, sometimes those kids end up at a million memorial services because, you know, they're just like, this is what you do. Death is reality. It's part of the religion. It's part of our... So that's an int- I just putting that yeah, out there. Is you know, interesting- I think because in my house, my dad was the one out you know, working, you know, a million hours flying all over the country. My mom was lead parent, right? It was again, that sort of dynamic. I think you're right. I think had my mother grown up the way my father probably grew up, some of those things may have looked different. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 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 No, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That was just to say, and by the way, we all come from different kinds of families that teach us different things. And, um, I think the sort of keeping children away from death is like, no matter what denomination you come from, no matter what family you come from, at least in the, in the West, I would say, you know, Mm -hmm. that's a pretty common thing. I hope that that's changing. Um, Because as I said, I think I, you know, we, we end up filling in the narratives and they're not necessarily in ways that serve us very well. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, 
So I want to sort of dive into the book again, other side of yet, y'all. It's so beautiful. And one of the things I just wanted to say to you, sort of, this is all unscripted, obviously, everything off the bat was, first of all, I love the sort of concept of the other side of yet. And I, maybe we can start there a little bit before you sort of tell us or the story of how the book came to be. But it seems to me that Bible and scripture is important to you and you sort of weave that into the book. And one of the things I found really beautiful, I'm going to sort of tell on myself here is I am not a religious person. I'm the child of a non-practicing Jew Holocaust survivor and a Presbyterian mother, none of whom raised us with religion in the home. I sort of went to whatever synagogue or church sleepover, you know, house that I slept over. And so sometimes the sort of when people invoke biblical passages or passages from the Torah or, or you know, whatever, that it's sort of lost on me. But I thought you just did such a beautiful job of weaving what was really meaningful to you, the various passages. In fact, I want to read one later into how you use that as a guidepost to navigate the profound loss that you've experienced in the, in this last decade. So I don't know, that's just a, a, a reference to you or just an acknowledgement to you that I thought you just did. It, you made it very accessible. Thank you. Well, you know, it was so important to me, you know, I was trying to do a few things at once. I was chronicling my own experience and really using in real time, fresh journal entries and poetry as I struggled and grappled with my personal journey. Um, and those things were valuable to me. Yeah. I did not want to, because the second thing I was trying to do was share them with other people. So hopefully they could be helpful tools. Yeah. And so I didn't want it to be so, I didn't want it to feel exclusive yeah. to Christianity, to being Baptist, to religion at all. Yeah. And so when I used verses, I tried to almost use them like they were stories. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. parables. Yeah. Um, to make larger points, to make yeah. other points, um, but never wanted you know, I, I wouldn't want anyone to walk away one thinking it was a book only for those who had certain religious beliefs, right? Um, or that they couldn't find what they needed in the book, because yeah. my goal was to offer tips and support to anyone that's struggling with loss. And, you know, one of the things, obviously, when we say the word grief, the first thing that comes to mind is death. Yeah. And certainly that is one of the most profound types of grief. Yeah. But we grieve in so many ways, right? Absolutely. We grieve health, we grieve marriages, we grieve careers, we grieve our futures bodies changing. Our bodies changing, the futures. Yeah, we're going to talk about that a little bit later because one of the things I thought was beautiful that you added was sort of also chronicling your own secondary losses, which are the kinds of losses that we don't really talk. There's like the primary loss and then all the things we lose as a result of that. And I think mm -hmm. that's another form of loss or forms of loss that we often miss both for ourselves. We don't name it, but also we sort of don't see why the person is suffering because we don't understand how those secondary losses are really compounding the person's life. But I'd love to just rewind, and I say this all the time when I have guests on the show who are sharing their own personal journey, to the degree that you want to share details or not, I do think if you're willing to share, it would be important to sort of help us understand, besides, of course, the profound loss of your mom and your grandmother um, in your 20s, what 
loss you experienced that led up to sort of really the chronicling of this book. And then we're going to dive into sort of the lessons that you learned and how you came to this notion of the other side of yet, but to, to whatever Absolutely. degree you want to share. Absolutely. So I uh, always wanted to be a mother, probably more than being a wife in, in, in part because I had a mother who I worshiped and I thought the ground just, you know, yeah. she like walked above the earth. Yeah. Um, which is why her loss was so profound. Yeah. Um, I'd also been told for the majority of my teens and twenties and thirties that I probably would not be able to conceive. Mm. And it was one of my worst nightmares. Mm. Um, Speaking and, of losses, by the way, infertility is another kind of. Absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. right. Um, I did not get married until I was in my late thirties. I married someone who I'd known since I was in my early 20s, we were good friends. He actually was my brother's RA in college. So I met him in our early 20s. Um, we joked that we were like the black when Harry met Sally, you know, we're good friends, told each other about our awful relationships, gave each other advice. And then at some point, we're like, you know, maybe we should hmm. do this. Um, and so we got married uh, in 2007. And miraculously without any fertility journey or support, I was able to get pregnant and gave birth to a perfectly healthy, beautiful little girl at the age of 39 um, in 2009. Yeah. Um, and her name was Gabrielle. Yeah. And Gabrielle was the type of child who like before she even got here was probably talking, um, never stopped moving precocious, funny, um, smart, uh, kind, uh, which I heard from parents uh, all the time, which meant a great deal to me, maybe more than anything, that she was kind to other children. And somehow, even as a young child in elementary school, would seek out children who were othered, yeah. whether they were sitting on the buddy bench because they didn't have anyone to play with or who perhaps were first generation Americans and were learning English as a second language. She seemed to seek those children out and help them feel included, which yeah. is really, really special. Mm -hmm. And by the way, not something a second grader comes home from school and says, Hey mom, guess what I did today. Right. Exactly. You would have to hear that from other people. Yeah. So Gabrielle was this amazing little girl. And as she got older and as I tried to give her every opportunity I could, it became more and more obvious to me that my marriage was not what I'd hoped it to be. And that, you know, I, when I think of my marriage, I think of, you know, words and pictures not aligning, you know, yeah. the things that we said we believed to be true as husband and wife, as parents, my husband just was not showing up in reality in that way. And being the type of person I am between Christian counseling, psychotherapy, I mean, everything, you know, marital counseling, I did everything I could think of to do before considering divorce, yeah. which again, when you talk about losses and grief, anyone it's that's gone absolutely. through a divorce, it's an incredible, incredible loss um, and grieving process. And unfortunately for me, I was divorcing someone who was somewhat disconnected from reality at that point, much more so than I even realized, and was angry that we were getting a divorce, was frankly angry that his lifestyle 
would change because I was the sole breadwinner and, and took care of everyone um, and fought the divorce viciously to the point where I had to move out of our family house um, a few months in to the process because I did not want Gabrielle to experience friction. You know, she did not fortunately grow up in a home with yelling and screaming and arguing and fighting. Right. Um, and the most important thing to me was that I was teaching this little girl that through my actions, not just my words, what it meant to be loved, what it meant to love, what it meant to to take care of someone and to be taken care of. I did not feel like I could do that in my marriage. Yeah. Yeah. And so after several months of back and forth, um, my then husband finally agreed to sign uh, the papers. And it was such a, I mean, it had been such a fight. I will never forget getting that call from him running into my boss's office and saying, I have to leave right now. He agreed to sign. I've got to get there before he changes his mind. And like driving from Manhattan back to New Rochelle, Googling, you know, a place where we could sign with a notary while I was driving, kind of sweating through my business suit because I was so nervous and anxious about this. And you know, we met at this notary, you know, there's a million pages to sign and notarize. It's kind of this weird, awkward process. You're in this nondescript space with this complete stranger, basically, you know, literally signing the life, you know, away. Um, And so we made kind of awkward, small talk. And then as we left, and this was because I moved out of the house, we had you know, kind of early arrangements around custody and Gabrielle would stay some nights with me and some nights with Neil, uh, my husband. When we walked out, he turned to me and said, I am so sorry for everything that's happened during this process. And I felt this huge sense of relief because the person I'd been experiencing over the past couple of years, but especially in the past few months was not the person I'd known for, you know, upwards of 20 years, 20 plus years. And so I hugged him gratefully and said, it doesn't matter. You know, our marriage didn't work out, but we were friends long before we were married. And all that matters is that we both love this little girl and that we want to co-parent. Yeah. And I drove back to my rental house, crying the whole way, calling friends, you know, sending out praise reports to my prayer warriors. Oh my gosh, it's happening. We're going to be able to move on. And I slept well um, for the first time in a long time. And frankly, wound up being the last Last time time. for a long time. Yeah, I woke up the next morning. And as I always did, when Gabrielle spent the night with her dad, I sent her a little video message uh, to his phone to say good morning, and went off to work, I got a response from her that looked like the typical response I would get from her. And about you know, probably one o'clock that afternoon, um, I had put my phone down for two seconds and I realized I had a missed call from our nanny. And so I immediately called her back. And when I called her back, it was clear that she had walked into a crime scene. I had never heard a scream like that. There was panic in her voice. It was unclear what she had seen, what had happened. I said, get out of the house and call 911. And my very first thought was, oh, my God, he's killed himself. He's killed himself. How will I explain this to Gabrielle? How am I going to help her with this? And then this just cold heaviness came over my body. And I called a good friend who always was at drop-offs in the morning and said, hey, did you see Gabrielle this morning? And she said no. 
And at that point, I went and found, you know, they call the little rooms now with phones, phone booths um, and conference centers yeah, yeah. and went in one of these little closets and shut the door and turned off the lights and got on my knees and said, God, I don't know what I'm about to walk into. Just please give me the strength to handle it. Yeah. And took the longest ride of my life um, from Manhattan back to New Rochelle home yeah. Um you know, reaching out to family and friends, knowing that some of them would arrive before I did, not knowing what I was walking into. But as time wore on, and as the drive went on, and as people stopped texting me back and calling me back, I knew. Mm. I knew. Um, and because if there was good news, you call quick with good news, right? Right. Michelle, she's hurt, but she's, she's okay. She's going yeah. to be fine. She's in the hospital. She's in the ambulance. Yeah. Um, and I remember just before we arrived on my street, um, getting a call from a dear friend asking how close I was. Mm. And, you know, what I haven't mentioned is I started my career at America's Most Wanted doing missing children's stories. I read about that in here. Yeah. So this feels. And so there's this surrealness of literally being on the other side of a situation I'd covered over and over. And I remember even saying to my colleague that was driving me home, who was trying to say, you know, I'm sure she's fine. She's probably hurt. She's probably confused. And I said, no, I've been to this scene. This, th yeah. no. I, I, I've been to this scene. Yeah. And as we pulled up and the police tape and the crowds and the chaos was in front of my home, mm. I saw my pastor first and he almost pulled me out of the car like a kid and said, yes, it's true. It's all true. And um, Neil is in an, in an ambulance. And that was kind of the shock, frankly, of the situation. And I said, you mean that MF, you know, didn't have the decency to kill himself Yeah, because that was shocking in yeah. that moment Yeah, yeah. Um, that somehow, somehow he was able to do this impossible thing and still was alive. Yeah. You're listening to grief is a sneaky bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. When we come back, Michelle talks about the personal and spiritual rituals she instituted right away that helped her find her way to the other side of yet. Are you looking for more grief support in your life? Do you want a friendly and understanding voice in your inbox? Maybe some behind-the-scenes scoop on this show, information about the book that I'm writing coming out in 2024, or even thoughts on what I'm currently reading. Would you like to know about the services I offer? Well, I've got you covered. Sign up for the not-so-regular newsletter today by visiting lisakiefoffer.com forward slash newsletter. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com forward slash newsletter. Why do I call it not so regular? Well, because grief isn't on a schedule and neither is this newsletter. I am so fortunate to have so many incredible guests coming your way still this season. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss a single episode. 
After the show, head over to Apple Podcasts or your favorite platform and hit the subscribe button. Oh, and while you're there, if you love the show, please leave a rating and write a review. Also, a simple and meaningful gesture of grief support would be sharing this show with someone in your life who might need it too. If you do it on social media, don't forget to tag me at Lisa Kefauver MSW or use the hashtag grief is a sneaky bitch. Just the surrealness of the entire scene. Yes. First of all, I just want to say that I'm holding you and Gabrielle in my heart and I, I, I honor what you've been through and also your willingness to share that story. I have listeners around the world who have all kinds of losses, including ones um, that this might be resonant for as well. And I, I think that surrealness that you're talking about, the sort of like how it's like things move in this slow motion molasses sort of surrealness, but it sounds like you were, and it sounds like you were sort of held uh, contained by quite a few people, your pastor, your, your friend. Yeah. Do you, what do you remember about those early days, weeks? What, what maybe, maybe as an offering to our listeners, what gesture, if you can remember, I frankly almost don't remember anything for the, for the first three weeks after my husband passed, but it was there some gesture or some words or some actions in those early weeks that someone offered you that you are reflecting back now, you think that was so, you know, what I needed or, or is it just I mean, all sort frankly, of a blur? There were so many. Um, oh, yeah. The, the, I think if I think about the most profound thing, it was the fact that people who were also experiencing this with me, this trauma, this violent trauma, who also loved this little girl, who also found it impossible that this man that they had known and loved and um, spent time in his home, that those people were able to stand for me wherever it was necessary. Yeah. If that was going back into that house, that was a crime scene because I, I literally couldn't, yeah. um, you know, getting me information I need. Um, but finding moments of, of humor, right? Like yeah. trying to find moments to laugh and kind of break the darkness of it all when you could, yeah. um, which for me was a saving grace was using yep. a wicked sense of humor and holding on to that during yes, this. Yes. Um, you know, for me, prayer and people that were praying with me, I started a personal ritual right away. I have always written, I haven't consistently written um, or journaled in years, but I felt like writing things down was going to be something that helped save yep. me. Yeah. And, you know, I think, because it was so shocking. I mean, for someone that's worked in television, that's covered school shootings, that's covered, this was beyond my worst nightmare. Yeah. This was beyond, this wasn't a school shooting. This wasn't my child having a, a disease. You know, this wasn't all of those horrible things that we shudder and think about. Yeah. It was for me worse than that and unexpected and the ultimate type of betrayal. Yeah. And so what I held on to in those early days was the idea that I don't know why I'm still here, 
but it must be for a reason. And yeah. I am not going to allow what happened to my baby to be what defines her, what yeah. defines our story. Yeah. And so I tried to find ways tangible and intangible from day one to build a new story, yeah. to build a story of her legacy, to build a story where I survived something that was supposed to kill me. That was unsur was supposed to be unsurvivable. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I resonate so much with that. And my listeners know from my training as a narrative therapist, I really sort of think about grief in this context of being this thing that we are, our, our, our story, you know, our identities are formed by the stories we tell and a death loss or some other loss, including this traumatic death loss is akin to the manuscript of our lives being torn to shreds. And grief is the journey we're on as we rewrite and live into this emerging story. And I think um, that's exactly what you're describing. And um, just a shout out plug, yes, for like writing and journaling. I, I cannot recommend, I mean, there's lots of great support systems out there, but our worst, I think the thing that can be the most dangerous for us is when our thoughts just bounce off the walls in our own head. And so writing things down really helps us have perspective. But what you just were sharing there about this this legacy building, this meaning making, not meaning of the event. So let's clarify, right? We don't make meaning of the event. We make find no. meaning in our lives, right? We find purpose in our lives. But there was a passage, I, it just so happens there was one of the two passages I was hoping to read to you that I think really speaks to that. I, it, it was related to a biblical story, which I think related to Paul. So you'll have to tell us the biblical story part. But if it's okay, I would love to read this passage because it really, sure. I mean, I underline, I was reading it and like, oh, I got to remember this. It's so beautiful. And you were talking about that, like knowing it's really the surviving the shipwreck story. Mm -hmm. um, you said it's an acceptance that what you thought you were put on earth to fight for has been captured by the enemy. Nevertheless, yet you are still here on this earth for a purpose. It may be begrudgingly or against your will at times. It is normal to mourn for the past. Wrapping my brain around a shipwreck that I couldn't prevent that left me as the lone survivor has been one of the most challenging battles I have faced on this journey. And yet, I choose survival over drowning. I choose to navigate a new world with a new set of constellations rather than going down with the ship of my old life. And you went on to say, you will find your road and you will take with you the pieces of your before that you find too precious to leave behind. <sighs> Gives me the chills. I've read that a few times. Um, well, first of all, thank you for reading the book. Yeah. I never take that for granted. Oh, devoured it. Yeah, really devoured it. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about why, how you came to know that or found that story or were able to embody that and what you might want readers, listeners to know about that. Yeah. So the story I use, just to quickly paraphrase, is, is a um, story. Um, of Paul in the Bible, who was prisoner and was on a ship with other prisoners and, you know, warned that his God had said, you know, this isn't going to go the way they think it's going You're to go. You're sailing into danger kind of. <laughs> You're yeah. sailing yeah. into danger. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then at some point said, you know, rest if you can, eat what you can, this ship is going to wreck, but you and your men will survive. Nevertheless, you and your men will survive. And there was something for me in the idea of 
you know, th- we, we try so hard in life. Um, I think when there are things we think we can avoid or perhaps could have avoided or when we shoulda, woulda, coulda yeah. things that we've lost to, if I would have only known, yeah. what if we would have sheared, steered the ship this way, yeah. but to start from a place of God, if you believe in God saying, yep, it's crashing. The ship is going to wreck. Yeah. Yeah. The ship has hit the fan. <laughs> <laughs> nice pun. Um, if you start from there. Yeah. In some ways it releases the idea. It's it's a surrender. Yeah. It's a surrender. The ship is going to wreck. Nevertheless, you don't have to. So the choice, you know, I think when you think about loss versus grief, we do not have control over most of the things we lose. What we do have control over is how we grieve the loss. And so for me, when I think of the deaths that I've experienced, the trauma that I've experienced, they are not things that I could have controlled. Yeah. That part I have to admit and didn't, I didn't get the warning. I didn't get the memo from God either, by the way, right. That the ship was going to wreck. Yeah. Yeah. But what I do have control over, and I think this is so important for people who are grieving because you feel like you lose so much, If, you know, I won't say especially because I don't like to compare, but, you know, when things happen suddenly, when there's violence, um, when there's crime involved, um, when there's sickness in a body that had been healthy, you feel victimized. You feel taken advantage of. You feel like your ability to manage your life has been taken away from you. I mean, it feels, you know, we like certainty and we like understanding. And there's just this, like the rug, the proverbial rug got pulled out from under us. And now up is down is up, up is down. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so that we have no control over. Yeah. What hopefully with time, I'm a big proponent of therapy and the right kind of therapy. And I know that there's privilege there and not everyone has access to the same type of help, but whatever type of help you can access, you can control how you grieve, not what you feel, but how you move through your grief journey. You do get to make some choices. You have the right yeah. To make some choices that should might be also staying be in, in bed all day. <laughs> I was just about to say that, which some days might be staying in bed all day. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that's I right. Think, yeah. You know, I, I think one of the things I talk about in the book is how surviving can mean something different. You know, there are days I would have been up to really getting cute for you. This was not one of those days. I mean, I apologize to anyone that watches this later. You all are watching. She's cute. You know it. Um, No, but but you know what I mean, right? Like giving yourself the grace of, you know, today. Meeting meeting yourself where you're at. That's right. And knowing that will look different every day and that there's nothing linear about the process. Um, But you can have an impact on your future, even if you did not choose how, what happened to you impacted you. Yeah. 
Oh, I really appreciate that. I think kind of one of the things you're sort of getting at is when we face a loss, whether it's, you know, an aging parent who we saw coming or in your something like that happened in your case or something in between, or not a death loss, like grief over a catastrophic injury, for instance, is I think I often talk about this as we become untethered and because the rug sort of becomes pulled out from under us. But part of what the struggle is, is we don't have any sense of agency anymore. It's like, I have no control over the world around me. I have no control over me, which also, by the way, certainty is also an illusion, but that's a whole philosophical COVID conversation. Taught us COVID that. taught us if that, exactly. Else, right? right. But so, so there is in this very nature, but these profound losses kind of pull the curtain back to those things. And culturally, how we live, especially in the West, I think some of our systems in, like reinforce this notion that we have control over everything and we, you know, but also just neurobiologically, we want control over things because that's what helps us kind of stay safe, you know, when the saber-toothed tiger was coming from us. And I love this notion of grieving being something that you can have some agency with. It doesn't mean you can tell yourself to stop crying when you're sad or yeah. don't be angry. Like this is feel all the feels lay in bed when you need to get up when you need to sign up for therapy. But I do think agency in itself has its own sort of self-fulfilling healing capacity, right? Like the more you recognize I have some choices and I'm making, I'm not calling myself lazy when I decide to stay in bed. I'm saying to myself, you know what, this is really where I'm at today in my grief. And this is what will serve me. Absolutely. You know, I think to your point, it can feel like life has taken your rights away. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, probably a better word for me to use than control is you have the right. You have the right yes. to feel, express, emote, whatever is required, whatever your body, your mind, your spirit requires of you in that moment of your grief journey, you have that right. Yes, exactly. And, and that's part of why I do the work that I do really as a grief activist is I'm wanting us to all recognize that whatever belief or model you think you know about grief doesn't contain or constrain your, you know, ability to sort of have the right to move through the grief the way you want it. Even the other person grieving the same loss because there's different grief styles, we have different relationships with people might be different. And so pulling back the layer, as you did so beautifully in this book, I think sort of reminding us that your journey is your own and claim that. Claim yes. that for sure. Yes. yes. And I, and a point to your, I do agree about sort of whatever is your thing, whether it's somatic body works or traditional therapy, or it's mm -hmm. if you're religious, if it's talking to your um, spiritual leader, friends, you know, being in nature. I'm a big believer in being in nature as a therapeutically, I think you talked about that too, as a therapeutically Absolutely. valuable thing. For those of you who've experienced a loss that's involved with trauma, I think having a trauma-informed therapist, if that's the route you're going to go, is extremely helpful. I've um, participated in EMDR a few times for, for things. That's that's one mode. But whatever it is, it's recognizing of agency. And by the way, if you're listening and you are way early in your grief and you're like not even getting out of bed and this all seems like too much for you, that's okay. Like I want you to know, just drink a little water, eat a little food, sleep when you can, and you'll get to that point where you feel like you have a little more agency. And sometimes, and that's not going to, as you said, going to happen linearly and you're not going to go from like laying in bed to getting dressed. One. Sometimes a shower is a victory. 
That's exactly right. Even if it means afterwards you cry and get back into bed because I've exactly. had those days too. And put your old smelly pajamas back on. That's right. Matter. Yeah, yeah. That's so, right. Yeah. When we come back, Michelle shares an important reminder that even though we feel shattered, we have parts of us that have given us hope and joy and to hold on to them even when we can't see them or feel them in this moment. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Friends, I absolutely love hosting this podcast. And while it's central to my work as a grief activist and my mission to create a more grief literate culture, did you know that I also have the great fortune to show up in other places too? I write about grief in various places, including my forthcoming book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, published by UT Press coming in 2024. But I also serve as adjunct professor of loss and grief at the University of Texas, Austin. Also, organizations across the country invite me to help them create grief smart workplaces as a keynote speaker for their significant events or to deliver workshops. You know what's really cool? So many of these invitations have largely come from listeners like you. So if you're looking to bring grief education, awareness, literacy, or support to your workplace or event, drop me a note. Visit www.lisakiefoffer.com. Did you know you can now get all kinds of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch merch from tees and hoodies to journals, coffee mugs, and stickers? You can find it in my Grief Happens shop. In fact, I love that people have started sharing their pictures with me. So if you pick something up, make sure to take a selfie and tag me on social media at Lisa Kefauver MSW. I'll be adding new content to the shop monthly. Next up is a series of merchandise I'm calling Cancer Can Fuck All the Way Off. Shop now for your own Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast merch by visiting www.lisakefauver.com today. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com. Yeah, and you know, the one thing I think when people hear journaling sometimes too, it, it sounds so, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to be Shakespeare now. Know. You know, if it's, I ate lunch today. Yeah. You know, some of my journal entries were, I moved my body. I yeah. walked around the cul-de-sac. Yeah. For me, one, it gave me some personal accountability. Yeah. Um, but two, you have this rich gift of being able to look back sometimes a week or even a month or a year later. And it's hard to see the incremental movements yes. that you've made and how you've grown until you start to look back. And that for me was one of the most powerful things about the journaling. There was the in the moment exploration or feeling, but there was also the ability to look back and say, Oh my God, how, look how far I've come. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and to, you know, celebrate the fact that I was still going. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely agree. I think there's just the, the ritual, which ritual we know is really important in grieving. And that could be the ritual of journey. There's just the setting down the stuff you're carrying around in your head, sort of lighten the load of the weight that you're carrying. Um, 
And I think what you said is especially important. I've often had clients do this work and I did this myself in, in my own grief. And I'm now writing through this new tumult that I'm going through again is everything is so incremental. And because we have these grief waves and these sudden temporary upsurges in grief, sometimes, I don't know if you felt this, you, we'll have a day where you feel like this feels as bad as it did day one. Mm -hmm. You know, you just think like the, literally the rug got pulled out from you and you just feel that deep agonizing pain. And so you can be at the risk of sort of telling yourself the story. I'm no further in my grief journey than I was in day one. And when you have a journal and you can look back and say, well, I actually got up today and I showered today and I'm whatever your, whatever your markers are, that's a gift that you're giving yourself. Every time you write, I ate lunch today. Absolutely. And I will tell you, um, one of the things that because I do have a trauma therapist, and I'm so grateful that early on, I was able to find a really great trauma therapist, when I still have those days, because those days happen, certain anniversaries, benchmarks, things, you know, can pull you back in your mind to think, Oh, my God, I've, I've, I've lost all this ground. And she will remind me it is not always going to be like this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, you have come so far. It is today. Yep. Today's a day. Today sucks. It is not always going to be like this. Yeah. And so I think that that to have the audacity to say that to yourself. Yeah. You know, the, the title of the book came from um, a verse in Job, though he slay me yet, do I trust him? Um, and for those who don't know the story of Job, although I think it's somewhat universal in different popular culture. Yeah, popular culture. Culturalized, yeah. Let's just say life was not great to Job. Um, you know, God and the devil sort of bet on whether this is like clearly not the theologians. No, I know. But we got it. We we appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Job had it tough. He lost everything. His wife tells him to curse God and die. Yeah. And though he slay me, yet do I trust him became aspirational for me. Because in my mind, everything that I thought my life was going to be had been destroyed, literally. And so the idea of getting to that other side of yet, where I could still have hope and trust that I could have a future was aspirational. And so I think understanding you know, someday I want to be able to laugh again. I always loved going to rock concerts. Someday I want to be able to go to a rock concert again. Like whatever that thing is for you. Yeah. Hold on to it because you, that part of you is still there. It may not be there today. Yeah. Um, But, you know, like I wrote in the book, whether we like it or not, sometimes we have survived this wreck. and we still have parts of us, even though it feels shattered to bits that are still there. And so hold on to some of those things that have given you hope and joy in the past, even if you can't experience them now Yeah, with the hope that you'll be able to at some point again in the future. Yeah. I love that so much. And that reminds me of the, well, you touched on it more than one chapter, but one of the chapters you kind of explored, well, there was one sort of around having defiant faith, which I feel like is what you're talking about there, but also the sort of the nuance for you between hope and love. Mm-hmm. Do you, can you talk, tell us a little bit about that distinction for you and why, why hope has been sort of a pillar for you? Yeah. I, I feel like 
love so often is left up to is so subjective. I feel like love is your version of love is the totality of your life experiences, whether you grew up in a certain type of home, whether you grew up with certain types of values, whether you've had successful romantic relationships, right? Friendships, trust, loyalty, and love can be used as a weapon in some people's hands. Love can be, um, dangerous in some people's hands. And so the idea of love certainly is one that um, reigns supreme when we think about important emotions and, and positivity. Yeah. When I talk about hope, I feel like hope is is much more black and white. I don't know that, and, and I'm certainly not a philosopher, but you know, I think that Hope is this universal. This is what I, this is what I wish for. Yeah. This is what I look forward to. This is what I'm dreaming about. And so for me, when what I thought was love, it destroyed everything around me and left me in a pile of ash. Yeah. All I had was hope. The hope that somehow I'd be able to get up the next morning, the hope that somehow I'd be able to face this monster in court. Because by the way, I spent more than two years in court, not just on a criminal case, but just to get a divorce took two years from someone who was behind bars um, being charged with murder. So hope can look different. Hope isn't always fairy dust and, and flowers, right? Yeah. But I think hope is a tool, as a weapon of choice. Yeah. When you go into the battles of life, um, for me, is the most affirming um, when love is not always what we thought love would be. Yeah. Yeah. And the relationship for you between hope and defiant faith, how would you? Yeah. So, you know, I think for me, defiant faith was something I came up with, with the idea that, okay, the devil came at me with everything he had. F that. I'm not going out like that. I am not letting go of everything I believe in yet. I, yet I will trust him yet. I will continue to do the things that have saved my life so far, even though I don't know how my life is going to be saved from this. I am not going to succumb. I'm going to live in a space of in spite of instead of because of. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's really that fight. I appreciate that. And you said something else in the book was, was around um, in your moving through this journey, kind of obviously the sort of reimagining your road, I think was the chapter and talked about sort of moving forward with hope and with defiant faith, but an, and, and my favorite word, and accepting that there are going to be gaps. There's this other section you talked about, um, this other paragraph, if I might share, because I just thought our listeners would appreciate this. Um, You said, part of putting a new life together with disparate puzzle pieces is admitting the gaps are okay. As you ready yourself to move into your yet, you may need to rewrite or reclaim pieces from your before. That is your right. That is your choice. And I think that's really gets to the heart of what you're talking about there. And for you, that was, you know, 
that reference you were talking about was even your choice to reclaim a relationship with your mother-in-law, which had, yes. had, had to set to the side during the trial, I understand. Yes. Can you tell me, tell the listeners, tell me again a little bit about that piece of the, you know, cause there's the things we carry forward with us and there's the things that we don't. And, you know, we have to all make our own assessments, but what, what, how did that come to pass that you sort of reconnected with your mother-in-law? Yes. So I remember, so first of all, my mother-in-law lost her mother when she was a toddler. Okay. So when I married Neil, um, she took me on. She didn't think of me as a daughter-in-law. She thought of me as a daughter. Yeah. And when I had Gabrielle, she frankly was a co-parent um, and could not have been a more amazing grandmother. And, you know, in some ways it was a time that was triggering for me because my mother was not there. Yes. But I knew that in earthly presence, I could not have asked for a more loving, doting grandmother than the one that she had. And I remember seeing her uh, because she was one of the people I called when I got the blood curdling call from the nanny. When I arrived at the crime scene, seeing her standing there almost catatonic, saying over again, I gave birth to a monster, I gave birth mm-hmm. to a monster. So this woman, who was a single parent, who gave birth to a child, her only child, who then murdered her only grandchild. Yeah. And for all sorts of legal reasons for my safety, for the case that was happening, this was a criminal case. My then husband never confessed. Um, Mm. He pled not guilty, has even since appealed, pleading not guilty. There was no way I could really have a relationship with her. And you can imagine it was complicated. You know, there were people in my family from a protection standpoint that didn't want me around her, um, didn't want me communicating with her. Um, And so we were both on these islands without even the luxury of getting to grieve with the other person who was closest to this baby. Yeah. Um, And so once the trial and sentencing happened and I was very clear on the fact that she wasn't in communication with her son, that she had not, in fact, supported her son at all, that I was safe. Yeah. Yeah. I slowly reestablished contact with her. Yeah. And, you know, she is the only other person who I can share certain memories with. Right. Um, And unlike me, she was not surrounded by love and sympathy and support. Yeah. Um, you know, she was surrounded instead by, you know, whispers. You know, yeah. this was her child that did yeah. this. Yeah. Um, and so it has not always been easy. It still isn't always easy. Sure. But, you know, I think honesty is so important in all relationships, certainly in the relationship I have with her. Yeah. There are times when I just don't feel like getting together. She just doesn't feel like getting together. We're honest about it. Yeah. But what's beautiful is she is fully a part of my new life. And my new life includes the fact that I fell in love. I got married again. And there she was, my former mother-in-law, sitting on the front row um, in the Bahamas at my wedding in December 2021. And she goes to church 
the same church that Gabrielle that we went to for years. We still go to that church, but now we're going with my new husband Um, and all of our memories carried with us. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much beauty. I I remember reading that passage in your book and just recognizing what authentic empathy you had for her loss and the complications of her loss, you know, um, and I just was really touched and moved by that and also recognized the sort of beauty in you being able to, in whatever fashion, invite her back into your life. Because as you said, she's almost the only other person who can help carry your memories, you know, of this person um, forward. And I think that's, you know, so remarkable. And as someone who has not a great memory, just historically, I mean, that's one of the things I struggle with all these years is the more, you know, my just the details of my life with my late husband, because we're uh, this year approaching, like we were together 12 years and this year will be 12 years since he died in my arms. So I think anyways, I think it was just a beautiful, um, uh, talk about hope. I can imagine if you talk to the Michelle two weeks after Gabrielle's murder or two months after Gabrielle's murder, like maybe not even imagining so many of the things you just listed, that you would have a relationship with your mother-in-law, that you would be willing to put yourself out there to be in love, that you would get in love, that you would get married. Like, right. And so um, that even, I mean, is is this living example of this sort of hope. And um, sorry about that. That's a living example of hope, you know, that had to happen. And I can imagine even looking back in your journal, if you looked back at two-month journal entry, you couldn't have imagined the journal entry you wrote the day of your wedding, for instance. No. And, you know, I think it speaks to like resilience muscles, right? Like we do resistance training in the gym and that resistance builds the resilience. And at the point where we're ready to curse the freaking guy out that's telling us five more pounds and it feels like we're going to (laughs) break into a hundred pieces, we have a breakthrough. And that's not just in a physical sense, that's in an emotional sense as well. And, I don't say that to say push through, push through until you feel like you're going to break. I say that when life feels like it is going to break you, breathe, try to eat something, try to sleep, surround yourself with people who love you and know that those muscles are being built even as you struggle, even as you cry, even as it feels impossible. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the tricky things about deep grief, especially sort of that early acute phase of grief, or any time in our lives when we have these really floods of intense emotions is they are very convincing storytellers that you have always felt this way and you will always feel this way. You know? Yes. And they are very convincing. And so doing the things that you're talking about, including breathing and sleeping and eating, but also having other people around you who can just hold that, not try to fix you or change you, because by the way, us grievers don't need fixing, but to sort of hold you and maybe be the gentle reminder that there there are and will there's no one who has ever felt one way forever. Our emotions change and to just create a community for yourself for that. Yeah. And, you know, I think... People always ask me, and I'm sure you get this all the time too, what do they do in these moments? You know, you become like the resident expert of my friend lost a child, a spouse, a, you know, fill in the blank, what do I do? Yeah. Um, 
And I start with what my therapist told me and my close friends, there is no playbook, right? There is yep. no exact way to do anything nope. that would make it so much easier. Um, but that's not the case. Um, when people would say to me, there just are no words. I appreciated yep. that because yep. trying to articulate something was about them trying to make it make sense to them or exactly. for them. It had nothing to do with me. Yeah. And so, you know, I think even gently reminding your friend, you know what, that was pretty freaking amazing what you did today. You know, the fact that you got up and we went out to dinner and it was a busy place. You looked great. We had a few laughs. You know, even those little ways you can be a cheerleader as someone is moving along. You know, I didn't want anyone to tell me I was better. Yeah. Because that felt like somehow it was dishonoring Gabrielle yes. during those moments. And like, and as if it was, by the way, a demarcation, like, right. And now you're better and now you have to sleep right. better. So you're not right. allowed to have a hard day. Yeah. But I think kind of cheerleading them a moment. Yeah. Um, is is something that someone that loves you and is close to you can, you know, like, boy, that had to be tough today. And you killed it. You were great. Yeah. You, you stood there or, you know what, I'm so proud of you for not going. I'm so proud of you for staying in bed with the Ben and Jerry's because that's yeah. probably what you needed today. Yeah. Um, I like that sort of observational, like I just because we can't see ourselves or the story of ourselves when we're yes. in our deep grief. And for a friend to say, like, I don't know if you noticed this, but I saw you smile a couple of times at dinner and I just thought maybe that might be something you want to hold on to. Yes. You know, in the hard times. Yes. Yeah. I love and that. I think the other thing is if you are the one who is grieving, it feels like your whole life has been ripped out. You feel so vulnerable. Yeah. I really challenge people to sit in their own vulnerability, meaning to be able to say to that person, you know what? I've got to be honest. I was scared to death to come over here. I don't, I don't know. I want to do the right thing. I don't know what the right thing is. Yeah. What can I do for you in this moment? How are you feeling in this moment? What's helpful? Yeah. Um, knowing that what helped, what's helpful may change in five minutes, yeah. but for you to be vulnerable instead of wanting to come in as some sort of savior or expert with all the well-meaning in the world. Yeah. yeah. What that person doesn't need is for you to name where they are, for you to give their ideas, for you to try to oh. give comparisons. Do you know what helped my cousin's neighbors? Whatever. Right. I mean, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But to just sort of in their own nakedness say, I, I just want to be here in any way that works for you. And by the way, if that's me going home right now, <laughs> because you don't want anyone around, I, I, I respect that yeah. too. Yeah. But to just be open and be vulnerable yourself as you're in front of this person that's really struggling. Absolutely. Showing up with that kind of humility that you, even if you've been through your own grief, you can't know no. what, where that person's at in their own grief. And just, just, I always, I mean, my field of studies in graduate school is really around holding space and bearing witness. And I think that's really what we're, you're kind of sort of talking about is like showing up in your nakedness, as you said, with your humility, not with an effort to fix, but to be sort of a vessel or present, or sometimes just a container yes. for somebody else's needs. I had a girlfriend who I met after my husband died. And one of the things I just needed, I didn't realize I needed this. I just wanted somebody to sit on the couch. Like, you know, my daughter was seven and I was alone all the time and she was, you know, whatever. And I had a friend who would just come over and she would not say a word and she would just sit down on the couch next to me and we would watch junk TV. No. Yeah. You know, so just like, it doesn't have to, people I think get lost in that it has to be a yeah. grand gesture. It yeah. has to be some solution, but it's, yep. 
It's not. It's about being human with another human because one of the things that grief causes us to feel is very othered. Oh, that's been my experience. Absolutely. Like, yeah. And we just Absolutely. want to be brought into this community of belonging. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. That's so beautiful. I cannot believe an hour has already gone by. I, I feel know. like we could talk like two I hours. Do. I well, do. Maybe we'll have a part two. You never I, know. Listen, I would love that. I would love that. I've Let's, really, really enjoyed it. And you've have such thoughtful questions. And, you know, the reality is, you know, I've never said to anyone, um, I, I, I know what you've experienced, yeah. right? Or yeah. I understand. Um, but I do think there is something um, in the community of people who have had profound loss in their life yeah. that there is a shorthand. So I, I appreciate your shorthand. Um, I, I appreciate you too. Yeah. We have a secret language club. Yes. It's not the club you ever wanted to join, no. but yet somehow we have that. Well, listeners, if you're watching or if you're listening, most of you are probably Michelle Hordes, The Other Side of Yet, Finding Light in the Midst of Darkness. I'm going to drop the links in my show notes when you follow me at Lisa Kefoff or MSW and at Grief Sneaky Bitch, wherever you are social on your socials, you'll see um, maybe some experts excerpts and uh, the link will be in my available there too, because... Um, you don't have to experience a, a loss like yours to get so much richness. As I said, I do this sort of now for a living. I've been through my own losses and I learned so many new things in this book and I felt seen, oh, you know, in this book that. in a way. And I think other grievers will too. So I definitely encourage folks to get that. Michelle, we'll talk off air, but I think we're going to have to yes. have another conversation too. I would love that. Thanks for joining me on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Don't forget, hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to the show so you're notified immediately when the next episode drops. I want to thank Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today and the team at Permanent Record Studios for producing it. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.